0: This is Art Matters, I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find artworks, stories, and more on artuk.org. Also, have you left a review for this podcast yet? If not, please leave us a rating and review. You can do it right now while you're listening. Navigating 2020 has felt exhausting and difficult, but this is not the first time in history the world has faced these types of challenges. There have been many similarities drawn between this year and the 1918 flu pandemic, but there is another year, centuries ago, that also stands out. In this episode, I spoke to Rebecca Redil, author of 1666, Plague, War, and Hellfire, to find out what made 1666 such a dramatic year in British history.
1: It's just one of those years. I mean, it's obviously got the biblical connotations because of the, you know, the numbers 666. So it's it's already linked with the number of the beast. And this was a really religious time anyway. So there'd been lots of premonitions about what might happen in, in 1666. And in actual fact, numerous dates during that century were put forward. But there was a general feeling in the 17th century that people were living in their last age, that something almighty and biblical was, was going to happen. So there's that side of things. But then equally, kind of coincidentally, <laughs> lots of things actually did happen in that year and the year preceding in the year after as well, which was um, remarkable even by 17th century standards. So we've got the Great Fire of London, we have the Great Plague, which happened in 1665, 1666. And then to top it all off, there's a huge naval war that's waged between the English and the Dutch, which goes on throughout this period as well. So, yeah, pretty much everything bad you can imagine happened in in, um, that year.
0: We'll tackle this episode in three parts, looking first at the plague and then the fire and war. There have been multiple catastrophic plagues throughout history, so let's get a better understanding of the 1666 epidemic that claimed the lives of an estimated 100,000 people. It's called
1: the Great Plague, and... Mainly because it was the last big plague in England, there had been plagues throughout the 17th century and in actual fact, plague was endemic in society. There were always a few people that died of it almost every year, but in terms of outbreaks, it kind of popped up every 20 to 30 years there'd been a major outbreak in 1603 and I think during this pandemic that we're living through at the moment there's been lots of references to how oh Shakespeare wrote this that and the other during the plague you know what What are you going to do but that's when they're talking about that that's the plague they're on about and then there was another major one in 1625 another major one in um, the 1630s um, and then wham it came, it returned again in 1665 so it, the people living in 1665 it was just beyond the reaches of living memory Memory, um, a major outbreak but it was still something that they were very aware of and there were tried and tested methods used to contain it so quarantine and you know things that things that we're still doing today actually and um, but in a much kind of crueler harsher way I mean we wouldn't get people being flogged for leaving their homes today but um that's what was happening in the 17th century.
0: An illustration by John Dunstall shows a grid of nine images of life in London during the 1665-66 plague. The top left scene shows a room with multiple sick patients on beds and another patient lying on a bedroll near a coffin on the floor. Several other scenes indicate a mass exodus from the city of London, where citizens attempted to leave by foot, wagon, and boat. The image communicates the severity of the situation at the time and the desperation with which citizens were trying to navigate the challenges of the epidemic.
1: If just someone in your household got the plague, your whole house would be shut up and you'd be quarantined for 40 days. And it's, you know, you found you find it when you're looking in the archives, entire families just tumbling into, you know, the beyond because they've they've infected each other or they've they've not been able to leave a house because they don't understand Um, obviously it's not their fault they were living in a different age in terms of understanding of science but they didn't understand how the plague was being transmitted they thought it was by this idea of a miasma which is a bad you know bad smells and um, disease being um, caught that way when in actual fact it was probably down to rats and fleas and perhaps human fleas and human lice as well so if your house is shut up you're kind of shut up in this environment that's that's lethal for you really. So um, yeah it's really sad when you look at, look at the records of people being closed up. There's one particularly poignant one from a man called Thomas Clarke and it was written in 1666 and he describes being shut up in his house with his family and I think maybe two of his children died um, but he also mentions being given keys and locks um, which I'm assuming was to um, lock up people with even within the household away from each other and he describes how parents weren't allowed to comfort their children on their deathbeds and it's really you know it's those types of stories despite the fact that we've got a gap of like 350 360 years between then and now they are they scream through the ages because they're just so sad
0: so what kinds of great plague imagery do we see
1: with the plague in terms of imagery it's not it's not like high art here you're not (laughs) you're not getting you know da vinci level artwork but it's interesting because most of the imagery relating to plague and and disease during this time is kind of pumped out and put on bills of mortality or it's put on medicines that are advertised as being you know these miracle cures for for plague and it's printed in black and white in in woodcuts and um, cheap pamphlets and everybody can look at these images and kind of understand and get a picture of what's going on and I think it's important to remember that in a society where you know in London obviously the literacy levels were higher but in a society where there's a huge swathe of the population that's illiterate Images are a really useful way of understanding a situation and that's why I think plague imagery is is, um, very important during this time.
0: So I've seen an image in the Welcome Collection that shows a man in a plague costume, you know, with this beak and that sort of thing. Okay. Is that accurate for this time period? Is this how the plague doctors were dressing or is that maybe a later plague?
1: No, this isn't accurate at all actually and that's it's one of the interesting things um, about how the Great Plague and 17th century plagues in England specifically have entered um, popular imagination. We associate this kind of cartoonish plague doctor with this time period, but it's completely erroneous when it comes to the Great P- Great Plague of London um, and also, you know, what, more widely in England. These beaked um, costumes were. Used in um, I think in the German regions, but also in Venice and other places earlier on, but actually, um, they, that wasn't there's no record whatsoever of that being an outfit that was used by plague doctors. Plague doctors speak about, you know, um, burning different types of herbs and stuff whenever they entered a building and you know a place that was, was affected. but there's no mention of these beaked
0: costumes at all. As plague cases started to settle in the spring of 1666, citizens began to return to London, including King Charles II, who had fled to the countryside during the height of the epidemic. People were still contending with illness when in September, the Great Fire of London ravaged the city.
1: Basically, most of the city of London was burnt and destroyed. There's kind of aerial images that were created afterwards by Holler and people that show the layout of the city afterwards and it kind of marks off the areas that have been destroyed and it gives this impression that the city was levelled when in actual fact it was just... It was a shell of itself. It was destroyed and there was lots of rubble and things there. But there is imagery relating to the fire from that time. In actual fact, I just think, in general... The year 1666, if you're looking at artwork, it's very orange. (laughs) It's very black, white and orange.
0: There are indeed several orange-hued paintings on the Art UK site that depict the Great Fire of London in progress. Artists show tall flames licking the sky and engulfing whole sections of the city. Many of them juxtapose the burning cityscape with the calmness of the Thames River alongside it. An 18th century interpretation by an unknown artist in the National Maritime Museum collection imagines a view alongside the riverbank facing London Bridge and the Tower of London. In the foreground, crowds flee from the fire on foot and by boat. While the topography is not wholly accurate, the artist does a good job of communicating the drama of the moment. In addition to their artistic value, images like these help to supplement written accounts in documenting historical events.
1: There's so many amazing written accounts from the fire. Samuel Pepys, for example. So he talks about how there were birds whose wings were being scorched by the fire. He talks, you know, he gives a really, really full account of what the city looked like. But you still, because it's so beyond our imagination to think of an entire city aflame. I think that's why, as you said, these images are just so important because they they reveal to us a situation that we don't
0: have the imagination to um, comprehend. There is now a monument to the Great Fire, 202 feet from where the fire started on Pudding Lane. It was designed by scientists Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke, and construction began in 1671. The monument is in the style of a Doric column and has a golden urn filled with a stylized fire at its apex. Inside, over 300 steps allow visitors to climb to the top and look out from the column. The height of the structure is the exact distance of the monument from the former site of the bakery where the fire originated.
1: It was one fire that grew outwards, but there were little unique fires as well because of the debris that was being blown across from one part of the city to the other. And this made people think that there were lots of, you know, there were multiple incidents of arson going on and, you know, they were blaming the French who they were at war with and they were blaming the Dutch who they were at war with as well. And anybody that had a foreign-sounding accent that was on the streets of London at that, town, at that time was at risk and there were violent attacks on on people. So in actual fact, any foreign-born Londoners were rounded up and basically imprisoned. And there's one person that says that at this time that um, safety was more important than liberty, which has got echoes, I think, of you know what's going on today as well. But it spread over the course of four days and it was rapid because of the wind. And the fact that it had
0: been a dry summer as well. This takes us to the final element of the 1666 trifecta, which is the Second Anglo-Dutch War spanning 1665 to 1667.
1: That was rooted in the early years, I suppose, of state-backed colonialism. And rivalries with the Dutch surrounding what was going on on the West African coast. Now, this was rooted in lust for gold, but also explicitly in the terms of you know what pe- what the king wanted. There was um, also a hunger to be engaged in the slave trade as well, to see where that would take the country's economy. So these these wars cannot be removed from the wider context of what was going on in the world because they were absolutely rooted in commercial interests and commercial interests that related to glittery gold and things, but also human trafficking. So... They kind of kicked off with naval battles. That's how they were fought, these wars. They weren't land wars. They were all fought at sea. And they started in 1665 and they bled into 1666 and then also 1667 as well. And there were key battles that took place. And what's interesting to me about these battles is that when they were being waged, both sides, predominantly the Dutch to be honest, but they... They commissioned artists to go with the ships to take drafts of the scenes of, of battle so they could then go back home and paint propaganda images to commemorate great victories and successes and things. And I think, I mean, I don't know enough about the history of um, maritime art to give a full answer to this, but I, I get the sense that this is a novel. Development and there were, you know, a few key players that were involved in in creating these live action etches and sketches and drafts of of battle scenes. Even in one instance, actually, there was one account of one of the artists asking to be taken out on a small rowboat so that he could get a better image of the battle that was going on. And these images have been, you know, we, we, have, them, we have them still and they're great ways of looking at how naval warfare was um, fought during that time.
0: A painting in the National Maritime Museum collection by Dutch painter Ludolf Balkhausen depicts the moment the Dutch captured the Royal Charles English warship. Hailed at the time as one of the finest in the English navy, the ship is shown surrounded by a Dutch fleet ahead of being brought to Holland and dry docked as a tourist attraction.
1: From every war there are examples. So um, there's an image of the Four Days Battle, which was fought from the 1st to the 4th of June in um, 1666, which is just... I mean, you can see it, you can see the, the heat of what's going on, you can see the flags kind of flapping in the wind, you can see the ships engaged in, in battle, and you can see the waves crashing against the wooden structures, and it's really interesting, and it's, again, one of those images that you can you can zoom into and just really, you know, look at and focus on different elements.
0: In addition to paintings commemorating victorious battles, artists also created portraits of specific heroes. In um, 1665 there was the Battle of Lowstoft
1: and Peter Lely, who um, was an artist that was commissioned regularly by the Royal Court in England, created a series of 13... Portraits of the flag. It was called the Flagmen of Lowestoft, and they're kind of adorned in all their regalia and looking, you know, like maritime heroes. And in lots of the images, you can see in the background a battle, you know, a fictional battle being fought. And they're really important paintings when it comes to the memory of of warfare at that time. A portrait by
0: Henri Gascard shows James, Duke of York, who later became King James II, elaborately dressed as the Roman god of war, with his armour lying beside him. In the distance, we see the fleet he led to victory in a 1665 battle against the Dutch.
1: It feels camp to, I think, to modernise. He's there, I mean, I mentioned the colour orange, he's adorned in like oranges and reds, he's got this pair of kind of greenish coloured leggings on <laughs> um, he's wearing all his royal regalia wearing this like really extravagant periwig and it's just one of those things that it's so of its time and you can tell that it was made for posterity but you look at it and you think good lord that really is a you know a restoration
0: <laughs> image we've seen that artists have continued to deal with these themes in their work through to the present day Keith Haring produced work addressing the AIDS crisis, Steve McQueen made a film about the tragic Grinfeld Tower fire in London, and Michael Craig Martin recently produced a piece thanking the NHS for their efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. Though this episode has looked at one year in British history, it's remarkable to see how much we can still learn from centuries past.
1: I never, ever, ever thought that my book would be relevant in the way that it is relevant, <laughs> I'll be honest. I really, in many ways, I don't want it to be relevant. I suppose the, other, the the hopeful ending is that people do recover from these things. Society does move on. And even though it feels like the end of the world at the moment, it's not. And history has shown us that people are much more resilient than they think. And we can pull through situations that we probably don't think we're capable of pulling through, but we can, we can do it.
0: Many thanks to Rebecca Redil for talking us through such a roller coaster of a year. You can find images relating to our discussion over on ArtUK.org, and you can hear more from Rebecca on her podcast, Killing Time. I was recently a guest on an episode discussing Caravaggio and murder, so do have a listen. As always, thanks for tuning in, and please join us again next time.